Parsha Sav, the Torah continues its descriptions of the various karbanos. We had the Ola, Chatas, various types of Chatas, the Shlamim in last week's Parsha, Mincha. Parsha Sav continues more about the karbanos. One of the karbanos discussed in Sav is the Shlamim. In particular, the Shlamim comes in two varieties. There is the ordinary Shlamim, and then there is the Karban Toda. A carbon shlomim can be brought v'imal toda yakrivenu. Toda means Thanksgiving, like today. Toda in Hebrew, thanks. The carbon toda is the carbon of Thanksgiving. So you bring a special version of the carbon shlomim, as the Torah describes. The salient feature, the unique feature of the carbon toda, is the lechem, the bread that is brought along with it. Many carbanos have nesachim. We say in the musafin, we talk about the. We talk about the Shlosha Estronim Lapar, Shnei Estronim Laayel, Yisar and Lakevets. We often talk about the various uh, meal offerings, flour and oil, wine that come along with Karbanos. So many animal Karbanos do have some a vegetarian component as well, from flour, oil, and water. But the Karban Toda is unique in the nature of its, uh, of its Lechem in several ways. First of all, the fact that some of them are chametz. We'll discuss the details presently. In general, there's a rule, kichal se'ar v'chal devash, cannot be brought on the mizbech. You can't bring anything sweet, any sugars, and you can't bring anything, any se'ar, any chametz on the mizbech. Kalamanach is bos matzah. In general, all the flower offerings are always matzah, with only two exceptions. The exceptions are one of the components of the lachme todah was chametz, and the shtalechem of shavuos. So the the carbon toda is one of only two carbanos that has chametz brought along with it. Second, the other salient characteristic of the, the other singular characteristic of the toda is that there is so much of the, so much lechem brought with it. Other carbanos have three isaron, we said, two isaron, one isaron. The Torah doesn't tell you exactly how many isaron the Lachme Toda were, the Torah just tells you that there were three, three types of matzah and one type of chametz. It says there were chalos matzahs, blulos bashamen, rikike matzahs, b'shuchim bashamen, solos murbeches, chalos, blulos bashamen. So there were three types. There were chalos, which are chalos, which are thicker loaves. There were rikikim, which are thinner ones, flatter ones. And there were solos murbeches, a type of uh, boiled uh, flour, with oil, and then there were chalas lechem chametz. The first three, the Torah only calls the first one matzah, but the fact that the fourth is called chametz, Chazal understand the first three were all matzah, the fourth one was chametz. Chazal explained that there were ten of each. Of these four types of, of lechem, there were, there were ten of each. Moreover, the Mishnah in Menachas tells us the actual quantities, if you want to quantify how much flour was being brought here, it was a very, very large amount. The Mishnah says that it was two ephah. The All the 30 of matzah, the 3 times 10 of matzah, were one ephah. And the, other, the, the 10 of chametz, the 1 times 10 of chametz, was another ephah. So there was as much for the chametz as for the 3 times of matzah. A total of two ephah. If you want to know how much that is, the ephah... The ephah, the Mishnah already tells us, an ephah is ten-tenths of an ephah. Obviously, that's a truism, but the, the ephah has ten isaron. The isaron, the tenth of an ephah, is a standard measure in biblical and rabbinic measures. 
the tenth of an eifa, what the Omer, the the, the, the Mun came down, the the Haomer Asiris Haifa, who the Mun was one one Omer per day, which was a tenth of an eifa. And in practical halacha, the most common incidence of the, the most common incidence of the tenth of an eifa is the is challah. You only, uh, when a person makes makes bread, he has to be he or she has to be mafresh challah. The chiyuv only kicks in if you make a dough that is the that that has the amount of flour of a tenth of an eifa. There are different opinions as to exactly how much that is in modern measurements. They often give it in weight rather than volume, but the but the, the standard the, the standard range of how much an asiris eifa in the context of challah is. It uh, on the low end, it's about a little over two and a half pounds. The Rabbi David Heber for the Star case says Lachatchila, the chi of chala without a bracha kicks in as soon as you hit uh, two point six pounds of flour. You don't make a bracha until you hit a uh, much larger share, because then we have more confidence that it actually is a uh, definitely is a, is an isar, and that that uh, the upper bound is either three point six seven five pounds, he says, or four point nine five pounds. So roughly speaking, the range in, in practical halacha of an asir sa'efa is about two and a half to five pounds of flour. The, and that is a tenth of an eifa. The lachme toda were 20 of those, two eifas, ten tenths uh, for each of them. So the lachme toda ranged somewhere between, a, roughly speaking, about 50 pounds of flour to about 100 pounds of flour. That is a fairly large Again, we're talking about a carbon of a whole animal as well, which is also pretty large. That is a lot of flour. There are various, uh, various rabbinic thinkers have, ha, have this idea that the reason the Torah told him to bring so much bread is because the carbon toad is all about Thanksgiving, and we want him to have so much bread, he'll have no choice but to invite guests and other people to join him in his party. He'll make a kind of suda soda, a meal of Thanksgiving, and he'll, he'll invite lots of people, and he'll, he'll wind up telling them what happened, and that he's giving thanks to Hashem for, for performing some, some great nace, for providing him with, uh, saving him from some great trouble, and that'll be a, a way of expressing his gratitude and, and publicizing the, the, the grace of God. The carbon toda, as we've been saying, is, is brought in thanks for certain types of salvation, from certain types of trouble, the, the Gemara says, There are four people who have to bring the carbon toda, those who survive a sea voyage, which was by definition dangerous back then, those who are rescued from jail, those who are sick and recover, those who traverse a wilderness, a desert, and survive. We don't bring the carbon toda today, but as we've discussed in the past, these four categories are relevant. The, the rush and later post can say, these are the things we recite Gomel for. So the carbon toda is present today in the form of the Birchsa Gomel, which the Rush says was, was an echo, was, uh, was a post-base amikdash version of the carbon toda. In any event, this is the carbon toda that the Torah talks about. As we said, its singular feature is the lechem, the unusual quantity, the unusual types of lechem, the fact that it was chametz, and that's the carbon toda that the psukim briefly described in about a half dozen psukim, towards the beginning of Parshas Tzav. Now, precisely because the, the, the carbon toda's salient factor, salient characteristic, is the bread, it turns out that there are a number of nexuses, a number of interesting connections between the carbon toda and Pesach, the holiday of Pesach, and the mitzvah of Matzah on Pesach, 
And in the, throughout this year, we're going to explore a number of these connections between the Karban Toda and Pesach and the Mitzvah of Matzah that we have, even Bismanazah. One uh, minor point, one relatively simple point, is there is a passage in the Maril in the 15th century. Maril discusses, we say as part of Psuke de Zimra, we say daily Mizmar Lesoda, which is a song of thanks. The, the psalmist, David Amelach, sings a song of, writes a song of thanks to Hashem. Soda. So Soda means thank you. But it also sounds like it's a reference to a carbon Toda. So the Maril brings a custom that throughout Pesach on Cholamoid, we don't say Mizmar Lesoda. On Yantif, we don't say it anyway because it's not part of the Yantif Psuke de Zimra. You don't bring a carbon Toda on Shabbos or Yom Tov. A carbon Toda is classified as a voluntary carbon. It's not brought on Shabbos or Yom Tov. Only the Musafin and the Karbanas Chova of the Tibra brought then. You certainly don't say the car- That's why we don't say Mizmar Lesoda on Shabbos or Yom Tov. The Maril adds we don't say it on Chalamoid Pesach either. Why? Even though, even though you could bring a carbon Nedava on Chalamoid, a voluntary carbon, but the carbon Toda had Lechem. Of the Lechem, ten of those Lechems were Chametz. I'm using the word Lechem, by the way, in the rabbinic sense, which includes Matzah as well. In rabbinic Hebrew, Lechem can be used equally for Matzah or Chametz. Some of the... You can have Lechem Chametz and Lechem Matzah, but Lechem is a broader, more general term, which includes both. But the Karban included some Chametz, and you can't bring a Karban on Pesach, because you can't bring Chametz on Pesach. That's the first step of the Maril. Second step of the Maril is, Erev Pesach, you can't bring a Karban Toda. To Erev Pesach, you can't say Mizmar Lesoda. Even though you're allowed to eat Chametz, we do eat Chametz on Erev Pesach morning, until four hours into the day, Midrabanan, until Chatos, Midaraisa, you're allowed to eat Chametz on Erev Pesach morning. But the problem is, as we just said, there's a lot of, le- of Lechem and a lot of Chametz brought with the Karban Toda. And even, even without that, any Karban, there's a rule that we don't bring Karbanos where the circumstances would circumscribe our ability to eat them. We want the carbon to be edible for the full range of time that the Torah allows it to be eaten. The carbon toda can normally be eaten for two days and one night, meaning the remainder of that day, the following night, and the next day. And on Arab Pesach, if you bring it at, you wake up early, you wake up for Sikin, you'll bring it at 6 o'clock in the morning, you can eat the, the chametz for a few hours, but you'll have to stop at 10, 11 o'clock, or chatos, midaraisa, and most of the time that would have been eligible to eat that carbon is being cut off because you can't eat the chametz after the Zmaniser. And we don't want you to do that because that might result in the kudshim being thrown away, being not able to be eaten, having to be destroyed. So that, that's a general halacha. We've had it in Dafyomi on and off throughout Masechus Psachim that we don't want to bring kudshim lebeis Absol, And therefore, we would not bring a carbon toda on Erev Pesach. And therefore, according to the Maril, we do not recite Mizmer Lasoda on Erev Pesach either. Some disagree. There is an opinion Maril brings that say that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really matter. You, so, some skipped the first two words of Mizmer Lasoda. Some said that you could say it because just like, just like Mizmer Shiliyam HaShabbos. We say Mizmer Shiliyam HaShabbos on Shabbos, of course, but we say it on Yom Tov as well, despite the fact that Yom Tov is not actually Shabbos, because it's, you're, you're just talking about Shabbos in general. It's appropriate to talk about Shabbos on Yom Tov, and it just uh, doesn't have to literally apply to today. So some say Mizmer Lasoda really could, you could say that as well, because it doesn't matter that you can't bring an actual carbon Toda. And we noted earlier, Pshutu Shal Mikra, Mizmer Lasoda, is not necessarily referring to a carbon at all. But the Minhag, however, the Ramah brings, the, the, that the Minhag follows the first version of the Maril, 
We don't say Mizmor Lasoda on Arab Pesach. We don't say Tachnun. We don't say Lam Nasech. We don't say Mizmor Lasoda. We haven't been saying Tachnun throughout Chodesh Nisan. But we also don't say Mizmor Lasoda. That is a, uh, so that is the Minog. That, that, that has been the Minog for hundreds of years that we don't say Mizmor Lasoda on Arab Pesach. It's actually ironic because Parsh of Sav, which contains carbon Toda, is an, in a non-leap year, is, is Shabbos HaGadol, falls out on Shabbos HaGadol. And some years, like this year, Parsha Sav with the carbon Toda actually falls out on Arab Pesach. We read it in Shul on Arab Pesach. But Mizmer Lasoda and Davening, that we wouldn't say if it's a weekday, that the Minag is, that we do, that we do not say Mizmer Lasoda on Arab Pesach. Now, we mentioned earlier that there is a that there was a very large amount of bread that was brought with the, that was brought with the, with the carbon toda. There was uh, 20 sarun, 10 sarun for the matzah, and 10 sarun for the chametz. With that in mind, let's turn to a Gemara in Psachim. Dafyomi, we just learned this about a week ago. The Gemara in Psachim says that, the, that lechem oni, matzah is called lechem oni, why is matzah called lechem oni? The Gemara brings various, uh, various explanations. One of them is that, what, one, one of these explanations is that it's lechem of an oni. You read oni like oni, like a poor man, poor man's bread. How is matzah like poor man's bread? There are different explanations given. The one the Gemara gives, the Gemara gives a couple, but one of them is an oni has broken bread. He can't always afford to get the most elegant, most aesthetically pleasing bread. His bread is broken or smaller than full-size bread. So too, on Pesach, we use broken bread. The, we have a matzah that is broken. And that's, of course, what we do. In our standard seder ritual, we call that yachatz, where we break, the, we break the matzah. As far as I know, in Talmudic sources, there is no mention of a ritual of breaking the matzah. It just says, this is the Gemara. The Gemara says, Darkishlani beprusa, so matzah should be a prusa. So you have broken matzah. Somewhere in Jewish history, the custom became to actually break the matzah in a ritual act at the Seder. We, get, we call it one of the 16 Simonia Seder. That's a little bit later, but Medina de Gemara is supposed to have a broken matzah at the Seder. But here, here, we, have a, here we have an epic machlokis going back about a thousand years, how to understand this Gemara. The Shita of the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, a thousand years ago, the great Moroccan posik, followed by the Rambam, the greatest postkim of Sfarad. The, the, the Riff and the Rambam said, the Gemara says Prusa. So what does that mean? That means you start with what would be an ordinary Lecha Mishnah of two matzahs, just like every, every, just like every Shabbos and Yom Tov. On Pesach, we transform one of those matzahs into a Prusa. You start with a Prusa, you break it into a Prusa, whatever it is, and you end up with one and a half matzahs. That is how you conduct your Seder with one whole matzah and one broken matzah. That is Shitas Arif, and that is Shitas Harama. The Rush, the Rush Bam, some of the Ashkenazic we shown him, the Rush disagrees. The Rush strongly disagrees with the Rif. The Rush says there's a chiyuf to have Lacha Mishnah on, uh, with two whole loaves, like on every Shabbos and Yom Tov. And therefore, the, the Shitas Harash is that you have three matzahs. You start with three, you break one. Now you, so that one is the, the Gemara's Prusa. The, the one the Gemara says should, not, should be a Prusa. Now you have one Prusa. But besides that, you still have two whole matzahs because you need Lecha Mishnah like every other Shabbos and Yom Tov. The Shita Sagra, the Gra in his Bir Agra to Shulchan Aruch, the Gona Vilna, as well as in the Maiserav, the Gra sided with the, with the Rif and the Rambam. The Gra said, the Gra had a number of arguments from the language of Chazal, 
In Svar also, the Gra said, I don't understand. An Ani is supposed to be someone who has, who's inferior, who has, who, who has inferior stuff. He's not inferior, he has inferior stuff. He has less stuff. He has uh, poorer quality stuff. So if you want to say the rich man has two whole ones and he has one and a half, I understand. He's an Ani, he only has one and a half. You're going to tell me he has two and a half? He has everything that a normal person has plus an extra half? That's not an Ani. That, that's not Ani Darka Baprusa. He has more than everyone else. The rush probably would have told you, hey, yeah, you look at this one by itself. A broken one is like an ani. We have silver on the table also. We have, we have fine wine on the table as well. We're not actually an ani. But in, in one matzah, the rush apparently held, you show that you're an ani, you have a broken matzah. But in toto, you can have more than, uh, more than an ani would have. But the gon, following the, following the riff and the rambam, says no. The gon says, the gemara says, prusa. That means one of the two matzahs that you would normally have is a prusa. You start with a prusa, you break it into a prusa, whatever it is. And you end up with only one and a half, and that's how you do Lecha Mishnah on Pesach, different from, it's unique, it's different from the Lecha Mishnah of every other Shabbos and Yom Tov of the year. This is actually one of my earliest childhood memories of Pesach. My father, having gone through, yeah. gone through yeshiva, so the, the Salvechiks, the Briskers, have many of them in Hagi Hagra. And my father used to use only two matzahs of a seder, as per the gon. It's not just a gon, it's a riff in the rambam. But, uh, but the, my father used to have two matzahs. And then I would come home from school, and I would learn all about Kohen Levi Yisrael, and three matzahs, and all the matzah covers have three, and I would be just floored, like, what is going on here? Why is our, why is our seder, Manishtana, our seder, from everyone else's seder? So my father, uh, you know, what, my father, uh, for purposes of chinuch, uh, reverted to using three matzahs. Just uh, I, we want the kids to ask on Pesach, but at some point we want them also to uh, not feel totally disoriented from what they've been taught in school. So my father began to use three matzahs. When I got older, as uh, as a sign of respect to my father, to whom I owe everything I know about Torah, so I went back to using two and. Simcha's uh, a smart boy. We've explained to him all about the three matzahs and the two matzahs. In any event, this is an ancient machlokis. By the time of the Shulchan Aruch, the, the custom, the Shulchan Aruch rules unequivocally to use three, and the dominant custom in the time of the Achronim has always been three, except for the Gon, and some who follow the Gon to use two, but the, despite the Rif and the Rambam, the, the dominant custom has been to use three. Now, when the Rush talks about using three, the Rush then adds another ancient minhag, and this minhag is not widely followed today. The Rush says, in Ashkenaz and Sarfas, in the Ashkenazic countries, Germany and France, they would, they would make three matzahs, and they would make three matzahs out of any sarin worth of flour. Why? Because they wanted it to be zecher l'lach toda. They wanted it to be, this was a, a remez, an allusion to the l'lach toda. Toda is a Thanksgiving offering. It's brought from, it's brought from when someone, is, when someone is, is saved by God from various types of trouble, including being saved from Beis Asurin, from jail. What happened to us in Yitzhak Mitzrayim? We were in Mibes uh, Avodim. We were in, uh, Hashem brought us out from, from bondage. So we, we, we owe Hashem a So the whole Seder is about thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But in particular, there was a remez in Ashkenaz and Sarfas to make the three matzahs of the Seder, which they possibly you have three, not like the Rif, to make the three matzahs of the Seder out of an Isaron of, Isaron of flour. This minhag was widely discussed by the Rishonim, and it was widely followed in Ashkenazic countries, to the extent that the Maril, again, 15th century, the Maril has a tshuva, if one of your three matzahs that you carefully prepared out of an isar and a flower was lost or broken, 
What do you do? Can you just open the box and replace it? No, because you have to have three matzahs out of an isarin. They have to be triplets so that, were all, that were all formed from the same isarin. So the Maril says, well, it depends. If it, just, if it just broke, he says, then you can get away with it. Because anyway, you're going to break it. For yachatz, you broke it a little bit early, he says. Not a big deal. At the end of the day, you have your three matzahs. Just one of, them, one of them was prematurely broken. Not a big deal. But if one of them was lost, he says, he got misplaced somehow, then he says, you really have to make three new matzahs because you, this is so important to have your three matzahs come out of the same Yisaran as an asmachta for the Lach Meitoda. And this was a halacha that was taken very, very seriously for hundreds of years. Throughout the Ashkenazi Rishonim, the Ramah brings it without any dissenting view in Shulchan Aruch. And as late as the Shulchan Aruch Arav, the Shlomo Zalman of Liadi, about two centuries ago, two and a half centuries ago, he still took for granted that this minhag was in place. He discusses these halachas at great length. He actually discusses some variations and some further refinements of this idea. Some people would have, just like our cars have a spare tire, there, there was some in Hagim that they used to bake four matzahs out of the Saran to have a spare in case one of them went wrong. He discusses that variation of the minhag, discusses what to do if they got broken or lost. He brings all these halachas down in painstaking detail, paragraph after paragraph. At the very end, he notes, the Shulchan Aruch Rav notes, all this is only a minhag, it's only uh, an Indian, l'chadchile, he says, me'ikra din, it's not a halacha, it doesn't come from the Gemara, it was just a minhag that comes from the Rishonim of Ashkenaz. But l'chadchile, this is the minhag, he says, this is what we do. Although, again, don't get too carried away, it's not, it's not me'ikra din. But this was the minhag for, for hundreds of years. There, there was, in, in Ashkenazic countries, this was a, uh, this was a very standard minhag. Around, Hi. yes. Follow this minhag, are your matzahs going to be uh, thick? Yeah, we're going to get to that soon. Thank you. Lewis, okay, is bring, that, Lewis is bringing up the question of what this implies for the thickness of matzah, so that is a point that we are going to get to soon. But in the meantime, about two centuries ago, some postkim began to challenge this minog. The base mayor, one of the great dachronim of Ashkenaz, he said, Hagam she'eni kedai, he says, to challenge minhagan shal rishonim. This is a, a venerable minog. It goes back to the gedole Ashkenaz. He says, I have some problems with this minog. So he raises a couple of technical problems. First of all, he says that at the Seder, there's a great paradox, there's a great tension that we have. On the one hand, we do various things that are meant to be zecher lepesach. So we have two cooked foods. We had that in Dafyomi also recently. We, had two, we have two cooked foods on the Seder plate. One of them is zecher lepesach, one is zecher lechagiga. The custom today is to use a piece of meat for the zroa and an egg for the chagiga. But we use two tavshilin. And uh, we roasted Zecher Lepesach. And there's a great tension throughout the halacha between, on the one hand, we want to make a Zecher for the Karbanas. On the other hand, we don't want it to look like we're being makr of Karbanas Bachutz. So, for example, what do you do with the Zerah? So the Rav Post can say the Zerah should be roasted, and it should be roasted in a manner that would actually be kosher for the Karban Pesach. Some say you shouldn't use a metal grill or a metal spit to roast the Zerah because you're not allowed to roast the Karban Pesach like that. Others do do that, and some say the reason is because we don't want to make it too much like the Karim Pesach. The Gemara says you should never say, Busser Zela Pesach. You should never have, we don't eat roasted meat at the Seder. We put the Zroa on the Seder plate, but we don't eat roasted meat at the Seder because we don't want it to look like we're actually eating a Karim Pesach without, the, without following the proper halachas, in, eating it inside the Azara and so on, inside Yushalayim and so on. So we, we have this tension that there are, there are a number of halachas which reflect our desire to make a Zecher for the Karim Pesach and the Chagiga. There are also a number of halachas that are meant to avoid any possibility of uh, giving the misimpression that chas v'shalom were eating kadshim in ways that would be prohibited. So the Beit Meir says he doesn't think this is a really good idea 
to, uh, he doesn't think this is really such a great idea, to actually set aside bread that's going to look like Lachme Toda, he says. It looks like you're eating carbon Toda outside Yerushalayim. You shouldn't do that. Despite the fact that we do have a Zroa, Zecher Lamikdash, but he, does, he doesn't think it's a great idea to start setting aside matzahs that look like the, the Lachme Toda, and therefore he says that the, therefore he says you shouldn't do that. He has another objection to this minhag. And why do this, he says, it's, it's, the, the harm is more than the, is more than the gain. Efsher yoser lahazik mi that That's like the, the classic expression, im lo yoel lo yazik, that no harm. But here he says, on the contrary, the harm is greater than the, 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 greater than the benefit, tzarachian. He's not thrilled with the minuk. About a century later in the Mishnah Brewer, the Mishnah Brewer says, ayin beis meir. Beis meir is, uh, considers the minuk a little dubious. And many places, he says, Kayom nishtaka ha-minuk. In many places, this minuk is not, is not followed any longer. Mishabur's language implies, as Rabbi Dr. Zivotovsky and, and Dr. Greenspan point out in a paper we'll discuss soon, that it wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't quite obsolete in Mishabur's time. And so in many places, they were no longer particular about it. The Archa Shulchan, writing at the same time as Mishabur, says a little more emphatically, Achshav lo nahagnu this is not our custom. And he brings... He brings a, uh, well, he, that's referring to a different minog we'll get discussed later, but he says, the minog about making three, uh, three matzahs from an Isaran, he says, that we don't do all this, he says, the, this, this, we don't do these minhagim, and therefore he's not going to get into details. Unlike the Shulchan Aruch Harav, who, who, who got into all those details of how to make the three matzahs, he says, we don't do this, these halachas are obsolete and moot, and we're not going to spend too much time on it. He does note Archa Shulchan Ayn Shulchan Archa Rav, who does bring all these halachas, implying that as recently as a century previously, century and a half previously, they were still followed. Ulai, he says, in his time, the time of the Shulchan Archa Rav, they still did do these minhagim. Today we don't, he says. So by the time of the Mishnah Brura and Archa Shulchan, these minhagim were uh, certainly not universal. They, 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 were not, they were widely not followed, maybe universally not followed. And today, as well, these minhagim are not common today. It's uh, very, very, very uncommon, certainly. I, I've never really heard of anyone doing this. But it's, uh, it's a remarkable thing, that the rise and fall of a minhag in the time of the... There's certainly no reference to this in the Talmud or the Gonic sources, as far as I know. In the time of the Rishonim of Ashkenaz, this minhag developed. For hundreds of years, for about 500 years, this minhag was taken very, very seriously, to the extent that if you lost one of the three matzos you would uh, go out and bake three new matzahs, and then this, these halachas were written about extensively. The Akronim of Ashkenaz, the Rishonim and Akronim spend a lot of time on this. And then, beginning, beginning about two centuries ago, the century ago, the, the minha gradually uh, died away, until today, again, it's virtually unheard of. Most people have probably never heard of this minhag to make the three matzahs of the Seder out of a single Isar. Now, j- just to elaborate and to discuss the question of the thickness, I wasn't clear on this before. We said that there are ten isaron for the thirty matzah of for the thirty lechem of matzah, ten isaron for the ten lechem of chametz. Obviously, the chametz ones were bigger, were three times the size of the matzah ones. Now, if there were ten isaron for thirty lechem of matzah, that means there were three matzah per isaron, ten over thirty. And that's the, the source of this minog of Ashkenaz, that since in the Lachme Toda, in the matzah side of it, there was one isaron per every three matzahs, so that was the source of this minog, to have one isaron of flour for three matzahs. Now, as we mentioned earlier, an isaron is quite a lot of flour. 
And Isaron using, again, using the standard shiurim we use for chala, and Isaron is between about two and a half pounds to about five pounds. So if you imagine, consider a consider hand matzah, traditional hand matzah. A, a typical pound box of matzah, depending on how thin they make them, has, roughly speaking, on the order of about eight matzahs in it. So give or take a couple. So if one pound uh, has, if one pound has about eight of our matzahs, even if we start with the lower share of an isarin, about two and a half pounds, two and a half pounds has only three matzahs. So that means that there's about, it's a factor of about ten. There are about ten times that you also have to take into account that when we're discussing the isarin, the isarin was just the flour, not the water. Our matzahs, there are eight pounds, eight matzahs or so to a pound, that includes flour plus water. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to find out how much water they put in the matzah. I've seen figures that there's about a two-to-one ratio, typically, in hand matzah, in modern Ashkenazi hand matzah, between flour and water, to uh, two units of flour to about one unit of water. And that gives the figure I said before to about, the ratio is about 10 to 1, that their matzahs must have been about 10 times the size, assuming the smaller share of Isarin, their matzahs must have been about 10 times the size of our typical hand matzah. If you use the larger share of an Isarin, their matzah was about 20 times the size of our matzah. So th- there have been several articles by, by the indefatigable team of Rabbi Dr. Ari Zivotovsky and, uh, Rabbi, and Dr. Ari Greenspan, who they've written uh, a lot about, about uh, the, the history and the Masara of different halachas, about animals, about uh, other aspects of the Masara. They're particularly interested in matzah. And they've published various papers in Journal of Halach and Contemporary Society in Chakira, where they've discussed the history of matzah. In particular, the two critical questions they discuss are, when did matzah become hard and cracker-like? When did it stop being pizza-like? It's almost certain that matzah in the time of Chazal was not, again, not like a challah, but it was more like a pizza. It was flexible. It was, it was soft. And also, it was thicker. It was thicker like thicker like a pizza. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't very thick, but it was, uh, it was more pizza-like. They, they, they bring numerous lines of argument to, to support this. I, people, I think, talk about, uh, I forget where I heard this from. My father may have mentioned this to me or others in the name of Rav Salavechik. He talks about karech. Karech sounds like you wrap things up. How do you wrap, a, uh, how do you wrap an Ashkenazi cracker matzah around anything? You can wrap the lettuce around the matzah, but it's... Uh, Sounds like you're wrapping the matzah as well. If the matzah is a pizza, then it makes a lot more sense. It's like a shawarma. You take you take the pizza and you wrap it around the the, the meat and the and the lettuce inside, and that's uh, that's a very natural way to eat things. With our matzah, you know, the, we try making karech out of matzah. The matzah is constantly cracking off and crumbling and falling apart. You have to hold it with both hands, and it gets all over, all over the place. It's uh, there are numerous lines of argument that indicate that the matzah in the, in earlier generations was both thicker and softer. And I don't think anyone seriously disputes that, that the, that, that the custom to make very thin, very hard matzah is a relatively recent innovation. Thickness, the, the softness is not really discussed by the postkim. Th- post- Thickness is discussed. The Gemara talks about earlier in Pesachim about not making matzah more than a tefach thick. A tefach is three or four inches. We don't do that. The, the Shulchan Aruch already brings, we make matzah less than a tefach. Some say the matzah could be an etzba, which is still about an inch. We make it less than an etzpa. Even the Ramah, even, even the Ashkenazic post who said, you shouldn't make it a tefak, you shouldn't make it an etzpa, they still don't say it should be cracker-like. The, when exactly it became cracker-like is not so clear. Not so clear when, when exactly this started. But Zivotovsky and Greenspan, where they discuss the, the various arguments against the idea that matzahs are super thin, one of the arguments they bring, as Lewis was saying before, 
is from this, this ancient Minag of Ashkenaz to make uh, three matzahs out of an Isaran. Even using, the, they say, even using the smallest opinion of an Isaran, they say that a matzah which was a third the size of an Isaran would be a matzah for the record books, many feet in diameter. According to my calculations, I'm not sure what they mean by many, according to my calculations, if I haven't uh, made a mistake, then using the smallest share of an Isaran, the matzah would only have to be, if, if you assume the matzah was, as, as I said, about ten times the size of our matzah, since the, since the volume of a matzah, given the given constant height, is, is proportional to the, to the to cross-sectional area, and that's proportional to the square of the radius, so it would have to be about three plus times the size of, the radius would have to be about three times the size of ours, a little more than three times, to be about uh, ten times larger. So the matzah would have had to, according to the smaller share of an isaran, the matzah would have had to be about three and a half times the size of our matzah, still pretty big, admittedly. If you use the larger number of about 20 times the size, it would have had to be about four and a half times the, the square root of 20. It would have had to be about uh, four and a half times the, the size of our matzah. So these certainly would be very, very big matzahs. It, it, they're certainly correct. It's hard to imagine that they were baking matzahs that were uh, three or four times the size of our matzahs. They, they would have had to add pretty big ovens. I guess it's possible. But the, anyway, it's, certainly it is plausible. It is quite likely that their matzahs were thicker than our matzahs. Again, I, I don't know if they use the same ratio of flour and water, and I also don't know how much water evaporates and burns off when you, boils off when you bake matzah. If there was less water, then the ratios would, would, be, would be closer, and then the, it wouldn't have to be quite, quite as large. But anyway, it, it's on the border of uh, somewhere between three and five, you know, three, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half times the size of our matzahs, which certainly strains, uh, it certainly raises one's eyebrows, but uh, th- th- this all goes back to this ancient minog, which was in place for many hundreds of years, that they would try to bake three, three matzahs out of a single isar. There is another ancient minog of Ashkenaz, not directly related to the isarans, but another ancient minog that also has a fascinating history of, rise, of, of, of its rise and fall. This minog actually begins in the time of the Gaonim, the first records of it are in the time of the Gaonim, this is also a minog that had very strong adherence for many centuries, and again has died away today, not totally, but it is uh, much less common today than it used to be, and that is the minhag of baking matzah on Erev Pesach. There's nothing in the Talmud about this, about baking matzah on Erev Pesach specifically. There is some talk in the Yushalmi about matzah, matzah yeshana, old matzah, but the, the Gaonim, there are a number of chuvos from the Gaonim about baking matzah on Erev Pesach. There are a number of chuvos and discussions in the Rishonim about it, the chuva from the school of Rashi, later discussions in the Rush and the Tur, where many of the Rishonim were quite strict about this, that you must bake the matzah on Erev Pesach. Not only Erev Pesach, but Erev Pesach after Shosh, after Sheishos, after Chatzos. Erev Pesach afternoon, that's when you're baking matzah. Why? So there are a variety of different ways of expressing the basis for this. Some said that matzah is like, matzah is like Pesach. We, we, the matzah is hukash la Pesach. Just like Pesach has to be shechted in the afternoon. That's as manchit as a Pesach. Taman nishchat. Perak taman nishchat. So too, the matzah has to be fashioned, has to be baked in the, in the latter half after Chatzos on Arab Pesach. Some say that it's related to that, that you're not supposed to shek the Pesach while you still have chametz in the house in the morning. 
you still allowed to have chametz. You can't make the matzah then. You can only make the matzah at a time where you're not allowed to have any more chametz in the house. In any event, there was this ancient minah going back to the Gaonim, which was quite popular in the time of the Rishonim. The Torah has a lot to say about it, numerous different shuvos of Gaonim and Rishonim of Ashkenaz. There was a very widespread minah to bake the matzah on Ere Pesach. It's not entirely clear whether this refers exclusively to the matzah of the Seder, the, the three matzahs of the Seder should be baked Ere Pesach, which maybe is more manageable, or it refers to all the matzahs you eat throughout Pesach, Beis Yosef goes back and forth. In any event, the Ramah, the Ramah in the Shulchan Aruch still says this is the Minhag, and the, the, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, they, they, they still pass, and this is the Minhag, at least with regard to Matzah's Mitzvah. The Dark Moshe said in the 16th century, the Minhag in our country is that we need the Matzah's of Mitzvah, the Matzah's Mitzvah specifically, after midday on Ere Pesach. Other Matzah's, we don't worry about this. Shulchan Aruch brings... We do not need, we do not uh, make the matzahs on Erev Pesach until after six hours in the day, which is the time when you're makriv the Pesach. When it falls down on Shabbos, like this year, you can't bake matzah on Shabbos, then you bake it on Erev, then you make it on Erev Shabbos. Some have the minute to bake it on Matzah Shabbos, at the Seder, you're not busy enough getting ready for the Seder, you have another job, bake your matzahs. We have a hard enough time picking out our matzahs and setting up the Seder plate. Some people were actually baking matzahs on Matzah Shabbos. You can't even start till Shabbos is over and you start baking your matzahs first. Like anything else, if you know what you're doing and you're efficient, I guess you can do it quickly. But this was the minhag, again, this was a minhag that goes back to the time of the Gaonim. It had tremendous traction in the, in the time of the Rishonim. Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, still bring it as, uh, as standard operating procedure that you bake your matzahs on, on Ere Pesach in the second half of the day. Mishabura says, Noagim, the Minog is to do it. It's only a Minog, he says. He brings the reasons for the Minog, the, the Drasha, and so on. He says, this was the, the Minog. But Diavid, he says, it's kosher without that. It's only a Minog. It's not actually, it's not absolutely Meikir Adin. Now the Mishabura notes, Rov Yisrael a Noagim. By his time already, 100, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, in his time, most, most of Jewry no longer practiced this Minog. Why? So he says he looked in the Achronim, he tried to find when exactly this, uh, this changed. Again, there, there was no clear discussion in the major Nosei Kalim. You, know, you, you look in the Magen Avram and the Taz and all the, great, uh, all the great classic commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, there's no reference to the Minnach having changed. You look in, you look in the standard Svarim, the Mishnah Brewer says, the, the, the major Achronim, there, there is no acknowledgement that the Minnach had ever changed. So when did the Minnach change? I don't know historically if anyone has done historical research about this. But the Mishaburah says he found in the Sefer Big Dayesha, one of the major Achronim, he found in the Big Dayesha, he defends the Minog not to be strict about this. Why? The reason is because in Arab Pesach, according to many poskim, even a Mashu of Chametz is Aser. The halacha is on Pesach, we're strict that even though when it comes to Isser Veheter, we have a concept of Bittel Bashishim, that a small amount of Isser is Batel Bashishim, but when it comes to Chametz, we're extra strict that, that Mashu is Aser. That halacha is only usher, that halacha only applies on Pesach. If a little bit of chametz falls into something on Pesach, all the food is usher. If it falls in before Pesach, you're cooking a week before Pesach, and a drop of chametz falls in, then we say it's bottle. But some posts can say that Erev Pesach is like Pesach. Erev Pesach, after the Zman of Isser chametz, we have the Chumrah of Pesach, that even a mashu of, of chametz will be usher. Therefore, it is very dangerous to bake matzah on Erev Pesach, because... 
If anything goes wrong, you have a crumb that falls off the rolling pin and gets stuck on the table, and a half hour later it's still there, it's become chametz, and now you, you roll out another dough and that crumb falls back into the dough. Now you have a mashu of chametz that got mixed into your matzah. The entire matzah is asr, because a mashu is asr on Pesach. Very, very difficult to achieve perfection, to not get a single bit of chametz in there, he says. Or to have wheat. Some of the wheat kernels used to have a little bit of chametz. The wheat had occasionally gotten wet and sprouted and turned into chametz. Therefore, it is preferable to bake matzah earlier to avoid such a chashash, because if you bake matzah earlier, like we do, then chametz mashu is bottled before Pesach, before Erev Pesach, and it's much safer to, to do that. Similarly, he brings from the Mamar Mordechai, he says also that today we're mekel, we don't do this minhag of Erev Pesach because it's too hard, we, we have too much matzah to bake, especially, I guess, today we, we do it commercially, we don't have everyone baking their own matzah, the bakeries would be crushed with trying to produce uh, community-wide quantities of matzah on, on, on such a brief window of time. Except, he says, the Mar Mordechai says, people are lenient, except for some who are nizar in this, to, uh, they do do it, and v'chein roi lasus, that is appropriate. So, there's no definitive real, real statement, really, that the halacha ever changed. This, again, this is a venerable minhag, it goes back a thousand years to the time of the Gaonim. The Mishabura found a couple of achronim who are melamed tzchus on the contemporary practice. So, so again, at least for a couple of centuries, it seems, the, the minhag had, had not been followed quite so extensively, until today it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost unheard of. There are, still, there are still, I believe, some people who do it, but it's uh, very, very uncommon today. And the reasons the Mishabura brings from the achronim are reasons involving pragmatic concerns. There's a concern for chametz. It's just very difficult because, uh, because the way society functions today, we can't get that much matzah done in Erev Pesach. So the Mishnah says that, the, that you have these limudes chus for people who don't follow the minog today. Archa Shulchan also acknowledges that this is not the minog today. He says that, he says that the, the, this minog of baking it in Erev Pesach, he says he has kashas on it, it doesn't really hold up, he says... He has a very interesting suggestion. He says, and that this, this kind of has the ring of plausibility to it, he says that it used to be they didn't have, especially if they weren't baking the cracker matzahs, pizzas do not stay fresh. You can't bake bread. You can't bake bread uh, and keep it around, certainly without freezers, for, uh, for weeks in advance. So matzah was always baked close to the time of consumption. How else? They, they, if you're not baking a cracker, if you're baking a pizza, it's not going to keep. It's not going to be edible after a few days, after a few weeks. So they were obviously baking. They used to make matzah all Pesach as well, because they needed, you can't eat matzah, it's a week old, it's not edible. So there, the, the postkim said, if you're anyway baking matzah around the time of consumption, you have all these hidurim, so the Arab Pesach should be baked on Arab Pesach. Literally, it should still be warm for Pesach, it should be fresh, and these other reasons of doma to the current Pesach. But that was all where matzah was actually typically baked constantly and, and with a very short... Uh, with a very short uh, production to consumption cycle, there it made sense to say, it's all right to so just do it on Arab Pesach, he says. But today, where anyway the matzah is baked in advance, we, we decouple the, the production with the consumption, it's anyway baked far in advance. Today, he says, there's no real need to bake it, no real need to bake it close to the, close to the right time. He says, so today it is, uh, today it's no, there, there's no real reason for the minute, like he says. And today he says only There are only some people who are medaktik who do this. Most Jews don't know anything about this. That's his opinion. And this is certainly the custom today as well. Today, again, it's, it's very uncommon to make matzah Arab Pesach. We've seen a variety of reasons. Postkim worry that it's more of a chametz problem. Postkim, it's just too difficult with commercial matzahs to do this. 
It's the Avdar Hashulchan's reason, but the Ramah Daktikim would do. And again, just from a uh, sociological perspective, it's a fascinating thing. On the one hand, this has no Makar in the Talmud. Uh, this has no clear Makar in the Talmud. On the other hand, it was a minute that goes back to the Gaonim. We always say about the Gaonim, Kaldivram Divrei Kabbalah. And it's not like one of these Minhagim in the Gaonim, which had no traction in the Rishonim. It was widely followed in the Rishonim, at least in Ashkenaz. It was followed for centuries, many centuries, throughout the time of the Rishonim, onto the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, down to the early Achronim, the Magan Avram, the Taz, the, the early Ashkenazic Achronim, take for granted this is still the Minog, nobody says anything about it, nobody says anything about it until the later Achronim, like Big Day Yesha, Mamre Mordechai, Aruch HaShulchan, Mishnah Brura, they all grapple with the fact that we don't do this anymore, and they give different reasons. But Salmaisa, both with regard to the Minog of baking three matzos from an Isaran, as well as with regard to the Minog of making Arab Pesach matzos, these are, not, these are not widely done. And uh, the, the Minog, for various reasons, rooted largely in pragmatism, these Minhagim have become obsolete, and they are no longer followed, except, at least with the case of Arab Pesach matzos, except with regard to some adoptikim. I believe there are still some today. I don't have a sense of how widespread it is, but it is, uh, but, but it is something that is rarely done today. Certainly most com- commercial matzah is, is virtually unheard of, but there still are some people who do it, particularly, I think, more among the Hasidim, I think I've heard, but less so among the Litvish, who are more concerned with chametz, maybe chas v'shalom is the, is the chance of chametz, but it's, it's just fascinating to consider the, tra- the trajectory of these minhagim, how they were at one point universal in Ashkenaz, and somehow over the years they disappeared, and now they are not followed at all. And just to conclude, going back to the soft matzahs, and the, so soft matzahs in particular is an interesting question. When it comes to thin matzahs, we have some postgim recommending they be thin. When it comes to soft matzahs, there's virtually nothing in the postgim about uh, thick or thin. So is there any halachic reason? Again, it's almost certain that at some point in history the matzahs used to be thick. At some point they changed. So the question is, again, we've seen how the minhagim of matzahs have changed over the years. The question is, how much weight, how much, does, does the contemporary practice for Ashkenazim have any weight? Is there any reason an Ashkenazi should be particular to eat, uh, to eat uh, thin matzahs and hard matzahs. Svardim almost certainly have no reason to be machmer, if, if, insofar as it was not their minhag. There's, almost, there's no question they have no reason to be machmer, but the question is for Ashkenazim, who traditionally have eaten for quite a while, for several generations at least, hard, thin matzahs, is there any hakpada uh, to do so? So Zivotovsky and Greenspan bring that Rosh Zalman said, Meikra din, you could use thick matzah, but the minhag for Ashkenazim is to make them thin, and Ashkenazim should stick to thin. He should not make matzahs thinner than what is customary. We have a small variety of thinness between Schatzer and Bells and this one and that one and Lakewood, but Ashkenazim shouldn't eat matzah that is thicker than customary. He does not discuss hard and soft. They bring Rav Asher Weiss, who says that Abikra din soft matzahs mutter, but he's concerned, as with a lot of things, we may not be expert in making them soft and thick and still avoiding chimuts. We may not know how to do that so well, Maybe that's why Ashkenazim started making it thin. Also, he says, it's Tarasi Mecha, Al-Titosh Tarasi Mecha, it's an innovation. Again, innovation is a double-edged sword. Making them thin in the first place was a double-edged sword, because historically they were almost certainly thick. But Rav Asherwai says, as a traditionalist, especially on Pesach, especially to follow Minhag, so for Ashkenazim, he recommends following your Minhag of, uh, and keeping them uh, thin and probably hard as well. They bring Rav Herschel Schechter, apparently in personal communications, I don't know if he's on record or not about this, but they bring, on, if he's on public record, they bring that Rav Schechter disagrees, and says, spongy matzah is certainly permitted for Ashkenazim, 
It's not a minhag. He gives an example like changing the parochas and shul. It's not a minhag to have one kind of parochas. That's the style, he says. That's not, a, not everything that Jews do is a minhag, he says. When the Ramah said thin, he didn't mean hard. He didn't mean uh, cracker thin. He meant not thin like a tefach, not thin like an etzba. An etzba, it ain't. An etzba is about an inch. Imatza shouldn't be an inch thick. But they don't have to be like a cracker. So Rosh apparently is quoted as saying, this is not a minhag. Not every style is a minhag. And uh, there's no need to be strict about this. The truth is, in, in other areas of matzah as well, there, there have been fascinating arguments about what's a minhag and what's a style. When they first, in, in, when they first invented machine matzahs, so the machine matzahs were square. And there were those who actually objected and said that matzahs have to be circular. Why exactly? Where does it say that anywhere in Chazal? It doesn't, obviously, but there were those who said that it is a minhag. And others said, no, it's not a minhag, it's a style to have matzahs that are circular. We discussed, uh, we discussed a couple of weeks ago, we discussed whether having shuls have to be a certain shape, whether square or is, 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 is quadrilateral a halachar. Now, Yehuda thinks that's ridiculous. He says, where does it say anywhere in Chazal is a shape about a shul? You could certainly argue that it doesn't say anywhere that matzah has to have a shape, and you could equally argue it doesn't say anything about a consistency, about hard or soft. Nevertheless, there are some traditionalist post-game, Rav Asher Weiss or Shlomo Zalman, who said that, one, that Ashkenazim should stick to the kind of matzahs that they've been eating in recent generations. And you have Rav Shechter, apparently, who is... Who, according to according to Zivotovsky and Greenspan, who says that it's not a minhag, that uh, that uh, that it's just a style, and you're allowed to eat spongy matzah, provided, of course, you're able to get it with a with, with a reliable hechsher. Certainly, someone should consult his uh, his halachic authority before changing from the before before changing the standard minhag. I guess I guess I need a Everything's got to be done in this very quick, rapid fashion. And it somehow it seems that in the old days, if they had the ability to do this with someone standing there with stop, they didn't have stopwatches. How did they follow? Did, were, were, the, were the time requirements back in the day less strict than they are now? That's a very interesting question. The question is, we, we, we obviously have technology and, uh, that they did not have then for time and so on. So what do they do? What do they do before they had modern timekeeping and so on? This is a question in many areas of halacha. We have, they published times, 1027 is the last time you can eat chametz, and the last time you can say kriyashma is 841, and, uh, and so on. They obviously didn't have clocks, and they didn't have, uh, they, 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 they didn't have calculators like that. They, 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 couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't quantify everything like that. So what do they actually do? So either they were just, you know, the Gemara itself talks about, the, the, the reason we don't eat chametz for an hour or two before chatzos, the Gemara says, even though Madurai said it's still chatzos, is because they were telling time by the sun, and it was prone to error, and, the, and that's actually why we have certain chumras about, uh, because people make mistakes. In general, one assumes that they used uh, rules of thumb, or they, were, they, they just built in a margin of safety, l'chumra, how they did it in practice, whether they just uh, stopped well before 18 minutes, or whether they had some means of approximating 18 minutes, I, I don't actually know what they. I don't actually know what they did in practice. As I said, it's, it's, it's relevant to many areas of halacha, and I don't actually know. I don't actually know um, how the, people have studied this, but I don't actually know how they how they did this lamaisa. In terms of the increasing stringency of our generation. It is clear that in some ways we've added many, many chumras. Uh, every generation, every century adds chumras over previous generations. What, one of my favorite examples is that in the laws of making matzah, as you, know, as you mentioned, we're very, very strict. 
the, the Mishnabura has a comment. He doesn't have a lot of the, he has a lot of homework. He doesn't have everything we do today. He has a comment at one point, like the rolling pins and the bowls, uh, they might have some dough stuck to them. So every now and then you should uh, check them and clean them. Every now and then, every bakery I've been to is, is cleaning them every single cycle, is washing them down and wiping them off and inspecting them carefully. I mean, there are clearly some things that we do with greater rigor and greater, uh, greater, um, greater uh, care than they used to. There's a story they tell about one of the one of the Litvish Gedolim, possibly, possibly Rechaim Salavechik and his father, the Beis that, that they tell that one of them was much more strict and much more nervous than his father was, or maybe it was Beisalevi as opposed to Rechaim Belazhin, the great Talmud of the Vilna Gon, that I think it might have been Beisalevi and Rechaim Belazhin. Beisalevi was very strict, and Rechaim Belazhin was much more, uh, much more calm and cheerful about it. So they asked him, your, your great Rebbe didn't think this was necessary, so why do you? So he said, my Rebbe is a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He knew what he was doing. He was competent, and he was confident in his competence. So he knew what he was doing. So he did it right, and he didn't have to make everything into a uh, into stress and into uh, what if. And I don't. He says, I'm not such a Talmud Chacham. I don't know what I'm doing. So I have to add every chumrah and, and be ex- build extra margins of error and be stricter and stricter. I just don't have confidence that, that I'm getting it right without building in all these uh, building in all these safeguards and so on. But some of it is that posts can often say, you know, we're, we're not expert in this and we're not expert in that, and we, we don't. Certain, certain procedures the Gemara says they used to do, like pour boiling water on the flour, we, we, it says we don't do that. We shown already said we, we don't know how to do that properly. If we did it, it would risk chametz. So the, the halacha explicitly acknowledges sometimes that, that we were stricter because we have less skill and less competence. But you're right, and we, we also have more technology which can help us and more. Uh, and and that helps make up some of the deficit, I guess. The halacha often assumes that we've lost in terms of in terms of old old fashioned uh, manual competence. But but you're right. At the end of the day, it, it is clear that in many ways we are much more strict than the some of the menhagim in the time of the Rishonim. They used to carry the matzah in between the kneading. They would carry it outside from one building to another building where the oven was. Tell it to anybody today, they would look at you like, what? They have, you know, they, they go around schlepping matzahs around under the open sky on the way to the oven. Like, who, 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 who could imagine such a thing? But they did. It was some reason held that was fine. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of things that they used to do that we've become much stricter about. And uh, that, that sometimes that's the way halacha works, that, that we've adopted uh, increasing safeguards and increasing homeless, some of which, as you know, wouldn't have been possible without modern timekeeping or modern, uh, modern technology. Yes. And also, I, I was wondering. I am assuming that making this, ma- making the matzah, was really a mitzvah for the men, not the women. When Gary was becoming religious, when we were becoming religious, the rabbi he made his own matzah erev Pesach, and like he would go up to the matzah factory, and his wife was home getting life ready for Passover. It it seems like this was not a, a mitzvah that the women did. I, I imagine that this was more male-oriented? It's actually an interesting question. It's actually not so clear uh, how much was done by men, how much was done by women. On the one hand, there are statements in the Rishonim that especially the Matzah's Mitzvah, it was considered a hidr, a special like Hasidus for, for people to do it themselves, people to make their own Matzah's, not, not to entrust it to anybody else. On the other hand, th- there are indications that other Matzah that wasn't for the Mitzvah, or th- that women were involved. So for example, the Maril I mentioned tonight, who says that if you lose one of your special Seder matzahs, you shouldn't just replace it from another box of matzah, he has a comment like, one of the reasons is, he says, because the other matzahs in the box, 
might have been made by miners, Gitanos, or by non-Jews even, he says. So apparently a lot of the matzahs were made uh, more casually, not, not, not by people with, of, of the same, uh, whether that means women or not, uh, I mean even non-Jewish women sometimes, certainly they, they could have been made by ordinary women, in, in, by, by Jewish women. So it, it is true that, that the matzahs of the mitzvah may have, been, they may have been more particular about, I don't actually know, historically, I, I haven't looked into it, it's an interesting question, but I don't actually know what evidence there is of to what extent matzahs were made by men and by women. In the Gemara, those who've been studying Dafyomi will recall, the Gemara repeatedly, when it describes matzah production, mentions women. Ha'isha lasha, ha'isha mekatefes. And I think, I think Rashi says, even in some of those cases, it says isha because they were traditionally the ones who did the baking, so they would bake the matzahs. So in the time of the Talmud, it does sound like matzahs were commonly made by women. I don't know, in Europe, in, 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 in Rishonim, in Achronim, I don't actually know over the years, what 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 the dominant uh, what the dominant gender was, but it's an interesting question. But certainly, there were times and places where there were women, but I don't know in general what what the common practice was over the years.